Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another Taken a Walk classic replay. I'm Buzz Knight, your host. Now, if you have suggestions about the Taken a Walk podcast, feel free to reach out to us at our website, takenawalk.com. You might have some ideas on how to improve the podcast. Maybe you have some guest suggestions. You name it, you reach out to us there. On this classic replay, let's go back to March of 2022, when Taken a Walk traveled by plane, not by foot, to L.A., where I met up with one of my favorite actors, known for so many great performances, Ed Begley Jr. I love Ed. In particular, love him in those mockumentaries from Christopher Guest and Company, Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind in particular, Ed Begley Jr. He's terrific. He was so gracious to us, welcoming us to his neighborhood where we took a walk. And here's Ed Begley Jr. on this classic replay of Taking a Walk. Nice little neighborhood in Studio City. It's called Colfax Meadows. And it's a lovely area with lots of mature trees, which is the big draw people finally figured out a few years ago. One of the most prevalent, one of the most common denominators in homes that have tremendous value is mature trees. You know, wherever you are, in whatever part of the country, the world you are, we'll go around this succulent here. Don't get stuck, Buzz. I will not, I promise you. So in um, the series that you did um, that was really about uh, living green, which was a tremendous series, I loved it. Thank you, Buzz. Um, 
you had a uh, a neighborhood friend slash uh, nemesis, I would say, in the series. Is that fair to say? Oh boy, you had to bring him up. You're going <laughs> to even say his name? Okay, I'll say it. Bill Nye. Bill Nye. Okay, here we go. Yeah. If we were having a fine walk, Buzz, and then you had to get into that. <laughs> no, the truth is, he's my dear friend, and it's like a, a wrestling match or something. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to take you down the 23rd of March. You know, it's a, it's a fun kind of competition that we have to uh, see who has the lowest carbon footprint. And I'll be honest, he was beating me for years, but only because there was one of him and the three of us. So per capita, I was doing very well over the years. I was his immediate neighbor. We're about a mile apart now, but we're not at all apart in our approach to this, and we want to promote sustainable stuff that people can afford. Not everybody can afford the kind of solar that I have or the, uh, you know, some of the other things that I have. So um, you want to promote things that people can afford, the average Joe or Jane. So we've tried to do that. You know, If you want to buy some highfalutin fancy car, that's fine. But if you only have the money to buy some light bulbs and energy-saving thermostat, you should do that. You know, plant a vegetable garden, make some compost, ride a bike, take public transportation. All that stuff I just mentioned is very cheap. And so that's the way I started, too. People say, I can't afford X, Y, and Z like you. And I go, neither could I when I started. You don't run up to the top of Mount Everest. You get to base camp and you get acclimated and you climb as high as you can. So that's what I'm trying to do, show what works and do it, do it myself in my own life. But I hasten to add, this I didn't get right away, Buzz. <laughs> For years I've been promoting, do what you can and buy the energy-saving light bulbs and do everything that's important what we do. That's important, but that's only one of three pillars you need to have any environmental success. The other two are corporate responsibility and good legislation. Yep. And if everybody's just doing stuff themselves and the government isn't involved and businesses aren't involved, you're not going to get anywhere. We need the Clean Air Act to clean up the air in L.A. It wasn't just people like me driving electric cars in 1970 and, and beyond. It, it takes good legislation, that's how we did it. And it takes corporate responsibility, and that's how we did it. So you need all three. And if any of them short, you're going to have a wobbly you know, situation. You need to have them all of equal strength. So that's what I make sure people know. Do what you can in your own life, but make sure that there's corporate responsibility whenever you can affect it. And they're, of course, related. The more stuff that you do, the more energy-saving light bulbs you buy or green cars that you buy, then corporate America is going to be more inclined to make them. You know, yep. you can influence corporate America with your purchasing power. You can vote on election day. You can vote in the supermarket aisles and the showroom floors. And then, of course, good legislation, same thing. If you're affecting what corporate America is doing, you're doing stuff in your personal life, you're going to help. That will help make for good legislation. You know, if you get involved as a, an activist, too, and start influencing the way people vote and the way our legislators vote. But you were a lone wolf at that time. It was very odd to drive an electric car in 1970. Of course, they've been around for years before me. Henry Ford's wife preferred her Baker Electric to his noisy contraption. That was a <laughs> 1910 car really? called the Baker Electric. Yeah. They've been around for a while. But, uh, you know, I did what I could stood on the shoulders of people, you know, Rachel Carson, you know, and other people like that. She wrote Silent Spring and Henry David Thoreau, you know, Emerson, people talked about the value of the natural world, and I chose to value it myself. Also, I got to give credit to my dad, Ed Begley Sr. He never used the word environmentalist, really, but he was one. He had lived through the Great Depression. He was a son of Irish immigrants. 
So we turn off the lights and turn off the water and save string and save tin foil. So by the time Earth Day came around, I was primed and ready to go. And he died within a few days of that first Earth Day. So Is that right? Yeah. So I did a lot of the stuff I did to honor him because he was always interested in what I was for, not what I was against. And I said, I hate this smog. Smog, it's hurting my lungs, Dad. And I, I hate it. I said, he, he, he would say, well, I know what you're against, which is smog, and I'm against it too, but what are you for? What are you doing? Go help the build a green car. Go down to the smog control district and testify about how we should clean up the smog. Do something. Get involved. Don't just talk about it. And so I, I got motivated in 1970, and I did a lot of stuff. And it all worked. What I did, what corporate America did, what good laws did, like the Clean Air Act, we have four times the cars in L.A. now from 1970. Millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. Wow. Ed, describe the scene where we're taking a walk right now, if you could. Let me stop for a second and just point out sure. what's going on here. Yep. This is the L.A. River. You can see a little bit of water in a like secondary channel cut at the bottom of the larger channel. It's for flood control. I understand why they did what they did back in the 30s. A lot of it happened in the 30s. The Army Corps of Engineers decided to pave over to control it because there was a great deal, of, there was a certain amount of loss of life and a great deal of loss of property. Because LA River was a meandering river that would be over here one day and over there and, and farmers and people kind of dealt with and built on higher up things like where my house is now, that's higher than this area Yep, you, you just walk from. And so uh, Army Corps of Engineers channelized the river. That was what they thought was best at the time. We know better now. You can do what they did in Scottsdale, Arizona, and other places. They have big spreading basins. You let the water spread out. This, if, even if you're a swift water rescue Navy SEAL and you fall in this water, you might not make it till they pull you out. Right. The water is very cold in the wintertime, and it goes very quickly, and so it's like a freeway of death, this water. So what they're doing more of, what, they're, what they already have in place now, called Balboa Park, it's a wetland where the water is spread out over a larger area, allowed to do what its job is, which is to percolate down into the water table and do that. So we're attempting to do what is downstream of here already. There's a permeable bottom. The sides are still channelized, mm -hmm. but the bottom is not, and the water goes down. And so there's not as much a rush of water as you go further downstream. We're going to go up to the, the source of this Nile, if you will, the beginning of this L.A. River, in Chatsworth, in that area, it's called Box Canyon up there, the West San Fernando Valley, and begin to, you know, break up the bottom of this L.A. River so it begins to permeate down more. And the more you do that and continue to move, eventually make it to the ocean, Long Beach and places like that where this all empties. You know, Bayona Creek and Long Beach is where this all empties. Then it won't be so much volume of water being wasted, too. We can meet more than half of L.A.'s water needs by just collecting our water by... One, having it go back in the, the water table, and two, to do what I'm doing at my house, which is to let it all flow into a water tank underground. I have a 10,000 gallon water tank buried underground. The water goes into that, then I can use it for emergencies, and I can certainly use it as I do every day for irrigation. Wow, so that's amazing. Now, did you did your wife come along immediately in this in this uh, passion? Kicking and screaming, I'd say, were the two words. I remembered that in the show was a little bit of kicking and screaming. Yeah, yeah. and but now she's along for the ride, isn't she? She definitely is, because a lot of it makes financial sense. And I finally ceded control over stuff that I really didn't have that big an interest in. She didn't want to see solar panels for some reason. I like the look of them, 
I just do, but a lot of people like my wife doesn't, so they said the architect and her and the builder said, we're not going to see any solar panels. I said, if you can pull it off, that's great, because they're up on a flat roof. But all they did was build a parapet wall this big. I'm holding my fingers about five or six inches apart right now, Buzz. And that's all, a little wall that tall is all that it does, because the first solar panel down at the bottom of it is just a quarter inch below that lip. And then they go up at an angle that you, is a straight line from that. So you can stand anywhere in the property and go, this Ed Begley is a liar. He doesn't have one solar panel on that roof. You need a drone to fly overhead to see I got lots of panels, got nine kilowatts. But the wife didn't want to see them, and we can, we can do that. Aesthetics, we've got beautiful you know, walls that are stucco and what have you. She wanted that look of like French Mediterranean design. We did all that, but what's in the wall is mine. I own that stuff in the wall, the insulation and the thick walls that are 12 inches thick. So now it's much easier to heat or cool that envelope, you know, that very well sealed up home. So she gets what she wants and I get what I want, which is the gearhead stuff, the nuts and bolts stuff, and she's in charge of aesthetics. Was there some counseling involved that got you guys through? Very or? much so. We somehow made it and nobody got hurt. <laughs> Now, She's much stronger than me. You'll meet her in a minute. She can take me pretty good at this point. <laughs> now, how did you uh, uh, get involved with the uh, passion uh, that I share with you uh, with the Walden Woods Project? Two words, Don Henley. Don is a dear friend of mine since the early 70s. We met at the Troubadour Bar there and the Troubadour Club. He was on stage, a wonderful guitarist, songwriter, drummer. He's a brilliant musician, and with Glenn Fry, they wrote some great, great songs. I would say. And he's written some great songs on his own, too, of course. He's a dear friend, and he wanted to do something. He had heard about, you know, this uh, property that was going to be made into, like, an industrial park or something, or they were going to develop this area where Henry David Thoreau wrote and walked and lived. And so he thought that was like firing up a foundry in the Sistine Chapel. And if we could save Walden, maybe we could save other places too. So he set about doing that. He enlisted my help and Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor and lots of friends and Sting and people over the years have all helped and he's done a good job. It's one of my favorite places to go take a walk. In fact, the first two episodes of Taking a Walk actually were recorded there. The first one was with uh, Jeffrey Kramer. Uh, oh, yes, I love Jeffrey curator, Kramer. Curator. And, uh, and then the second one was with a former morning uh, host of mine from my radio days, a guy by the name of Wildy Brine. Do you remember the first time you took a walk in, uh, in the Walden Pond area? It was with Don Henley and Kathy Anderson. It was the first Walden Woods walk that we had. We had an event there to raise money to buy the land, and we did. And, you know, uh, that was, I think that was the early 90s, like 91 or something like it. That sounds right, because I met you and Don for the first time when I programmed the classic rock station, uh, WZLX, and you guys came up and did an interview. So that was around that time. That sounds like 92, something like that. It was that in Boston or Concord? That was in Boston. Yes, I and, remember that now. And then and we ultimately met at a uh, Nikki Songus uh, oh, yes. benefit in Concord at That's uh, right. uh, the uh, Rasmussen's beautiful uh, I love their house home. there. Oh, my and God. I knew Paul Songus, too. He's a wonderful man wonderful man yeah so walking for you is important very important that's my transportation hierarchy I quite deliberately moved to an area where I could walk to restaurants walk to the bank walk to the post office you know that's 
my number one form of, I'm known for electric cars, but my number one form of transportation is walking. Number two is my bike. Number three is public transportation. So the electric car is a distant fourth. And so, uh, you know, and I try not to fly too. I can, I've recently, it's been a lot easier because nobody was flying much, but I went two and a half years recently without flying and I was very happy with that. So, and does walking, uh, does it clear your head if you're in a creative log jam? It does. It's wonderful when you're writing or just going about the business of living, going about the business of the day to just take a walk, let it all peel away and drink in the moments like this one right now where everything is perfect. I have everything that I need. The river is flowing even though we haven't had much rain late. You can see water down there. That's coming from something called the Hyperion plant. They take all the raw sewage in that end of the valley, well the middle of the valley really is where it sits from uphill of there in the San Fernando Valley and they treat it. So that is really nearly drinkable water. I suppose you could drink it if you're in a real pinch but it's been fully purified and what have you and now it's part of the ecosystem. That water is running year-round because it's, it's raw sewage that's been cleaned and so there's birds and other aquatic life that depend on it now and it's not harming them. It's not toxic the way it used to be because of the manner in which they treat it. So, uh, and that's the important thing people have to realize. The environment isn't just Walden Pond. It isn't just, you know, the rainforest in Brazil. That's, of course, the environment. We have to protect that. That's essential. But the environment is also here in this concrete channel. This is part of the environment. South Central is part of the environment. You know, Love Canal is part of the environment. We just need to set about cleaning up those things where we've made a mess and uh, protecting uh, all the areas, this and everything that we have developed, uh, we have to make sure that it's in some kind of balance and we can continue to live and thrive with it, what we need from the natural world. So are you currently working on any uh, script uh, processes uh, for movies or television these days? I'm writing these days. I'm writing my memoir, believe it or not. I've finished it pretty much. I'll wait and see what a, a book agent or a publisher has to say about it. I'm certainly open to changes, but I finished it. It's, uh, you know, 50... 4,000 words or something. I think that's a good length for a book like that. And uh, and I've enjoyed writing it. To remember all that's happened in the past 72 years has been a joy. And uh, did you do that during the last couple of years where you were particularly focused on it? I just started it just after Christmas and before New Year's. I just started a few months ago. Really? And, and it just poured out. You know, I just uh, wow. one event connected to another. And let me be clear here. A lot of these are stories I've told many times over the years. The story about Marlon Brando and the electric ears, eels, is a story I've told many times. The story about, you know, uh, uh, having a car accident on Christmas Eve on Sunset Boulevard in San Vicente. That's a, a story I've told many times. And so I just wove all those stories together in some hopefully coherent manner, and pretty <laughs> soon it's a book. And did you have fun writing it? I had great fun because the process of writing that stuff that's part of your life, the keyboard becomes like a Ouija board, that, but one that's not bogus, one that actually works. Wait a minute, why am I being pulled over here to this event? What's happening? The Ouija board's trying to tell me something. But it really is. One event connects to another. You open a doorway you haven't opened in a while, and the process of opening that door blows open other doors down that same hallway 
that lead to things you haven't thought of in 55 years. Wow, that's outstanding. And um, do you, when you list some of the characters that you've played, are there are there favorite characters in particular? I mean, there's so many characters you have played, it would take me days to list them, but are there particular favorites of yours? Just by the longevity of it, by the length of it, and the quality of it, uh, St. Elsewhere was a great show, and that, that took place in Boston, of course. Yep. And uh, I was a California native, uh, moved to Boston to uh, to study medicine, and uh, I did that show for six years, you know, with Denzel Washington and Bonnie Bartlett and Bill Daniels and Ed Flanders and Christina Pickles, wonderful actors all, David Morris, I mean, the quality of the acting, the quality of the directing, the quality of the writing, Bruce Paltrow literally changed my life by giving me that job. I didn't get the job I wanted. I wanted to play Dr. Peter White, but he got killed three years into the show. My character, which was a minor character, the the pilot, like one or two lines, became one of the major characters. Right. So yeah. you sometimes, uh, it's sometimes better if you don't get what you want, Buzz. Wow. And what was it like working with that whole crew uh, around the Christopher Guest uh, mockumentaries? Uh, how did you uh, just uh, get through without uh, completely being in stitches all the time? I mean, it's nearly impossible to work <laughs> with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They're trying to check into the hotel and best in show. And, you know, there's no script. There's a treatment. You know that the slug line that you have to operate off of is Jerry and Cookie Fleck, which is Eugene and Catherine, try to check in the hotel, their credit card doesn't work. That's all you have, but then you're dealing with those two and look out. Oh my God, and I would imagine you were channeling in some instances, um, you know, hotel um, uh, employees and at check-in that you probably had dealt with, is that? Exactly, and trying not to do what they did in so many bogus scenes and movies that I've seen where, sir, your credit card doesn't work, and somebody's got, when I've seen that happen, when somebody's credit card doesn't work, or my, even mine didn't work, they're like, uh, they're, they pretend it's not really happening, they're anything but confrontational, I'm so, it must be the strip, maybe it's the bad strip, let me try it, no, it's, it's actually saying declined, is it possible? Yeah. They're not trying to, you know, make you feel bad, they're trying to pretend it isn't happening to help you feel better. So I tried to use that as my guiding force with this and uh, and just keep it real with the, those two, with Eugene and Catherine. And, and then Michael McKean and Michael Higgins check into the hotel too. And that just, I mean, that was nearly impossible to keep a straight face, a straight face with those two. <laughs> oh my God. Do you watch your work from the past ever? I do. I'm very objective about it. There's some stuff I don't like, but I mostly like it because I work with good people. It's not that I'm so good. I'm working with... Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. I'm working with Michael Hitchcock. You know, I'm working with Michael Higgins and Michael McKean. Uh, you know, Fred Willard. <clears throat> all these great actors, actresses, and the incredible Chris Guest. <clears throat> you know, Parker Posey, for God's sake. I just try to keep up with those two. I just hang along. You know, hang on to them for the ride is what I do. Is there anybody that you haven't worked with that you'd like to work with? There's a boom man at Burbank Studios at Warner Brothers. I haven't worked with, and there's a. Uh, there's a dolly grip at 20th. I'm going to have lunch with them this week. I'm going to put an end to that. There's two people that I haven't met. I was born here, Buzz. What am I going to do? Born here in 49 at Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital. Didn't get any more Hollywood than that. How has Hollywood changed? It's changed in some good ways, as I mentioned. There's a lot less smog now because of everything we did right. There's a lot of development. There's sadly a lot of problems with homeless people now. We need to find housing for those people as best we can. It's a challenge. Not everybody in LA wants to make room in their neighborhood for that. So we're trying to 
happy uh, understanding of everybody's position in that and do what's best for, for all. And hopefully we'll get to that. So it's it changed a lot, but there's a lot that's good. Besides clean air, there's more opportunities for a lot of people that should have had opportunities years ago, you know, uh, not just with voting, but uh, access to jobs and what have you. You know, I, I finally became aware, I think I was 30 years old before I, re I really realized that I won the lottery being born at Begley's son. I really think I was that old a man till really? something like 31. Wait a minute, I got a great deal here being born his son. A lot of people didn't have that kind of privilege and that opportunity. And so that's being addressed now, and I think that's a wonderful thing and long overdue. Who were some of his friends that you remember meeting when you were young? You know, I hadn't a clue who I was meeting sometimes. We would go and stop at this couple's house in Santa Barbara. His name was Paul, and her name was Bella. The two of them lived up there in Santa Barbara. And it's like, Dad, when are we? I want to ride the cable cars in San Francisco. When are we going to get out of here? What time are we going to leave? And they were talking about stuff, acting perhaps, and other things, and, and just life. And I always wanted to get away from that. It was Paul Muni, the great actor Paul Muni. I was in the presence of greatness. As a kid, you don't know that. So then I cherished and tried to remember those stories when I realized who I was dealing with. I hadn't seen Fugitive from a Chain Gang. I haven't seen, I didn't see he and my father on Broadway in Inherit the Wind, for which they both won Tony. So I was just some guy. And, uh, but he had a lot of normal friends too, guys. He worked with at a factory in, uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, where he was born, called the Wire Mold Factory. Literally the kind of conduit, the molding that they had, they used to run a, a wire like to an overhead fan or to a light bulb in an office or a home. It was called wire mold. It was, and you put the wires in there. You didn't want them to short out or be somebody to cut them accidentally. So they're in this. And my dad worked at the wire mold plant for years. So he had these friends that worked at that plant with him. He was really basically a factory worker that made it late in life. Like when he was about 40, he started to make it in radio in Hartford, Connecticut. Then he went on to New York and did better in radio. Then he did stage plays in New York and then finally movies. And he got nominated for and won an Oscar for Sweet Bird of Youth. So he Twelve was Angry Men, Twelve not, Angry a bad, Men. not a bad movie. What a cast. What a wonderful movie. Sydney I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, by the way. Oh, and I great. started in radio, actually, in that area, Fairfield County, Connecticut. So where your father started is a, kind of a special place. Uh, That's great. TIC. It's, it's, it's still there, isn't it? It is. WTIC. AM and FM. Yeah. That's great. There was a guy named Bob Steele who used to work there. I think he That was name there, is familiar. I think he was there 60 years before he ultimately uh, retired from his, wow. from his craft. So when you think of Can your we start craft, walking yeah, back? sure. When you think of your craft, is there something that you haven't uh, learned maybe that you would like to learn? I really, I'm enjoying life right now, whatever my position in the food chain is or, you know, whatever work I have before me, I feel like I'm right on schedule and I, you know, I'm just taking what comes my way. I, I'm not very aggressive about seeking out parts. I'm very lucky in that People come to me and ask me to play part X, Y, or Z, and I and I enjoy it. If I don't enjoy what I'm reading, I won't do it, of course. I don't have to audition often, often, which is nice. I just get asked to do a role, and I do it. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty nice setup to still be in Hollywood, still be working 55 years later. I, I just feel blessed. So when you think of the world uh, today, the conflict that's going on, the Ukraine conflict there which is just so horrible um, when you consider what entertainment means to people now um, 
how important is it in, a, in light of the terrible things that are happening, um, you know, in that war? I think entertainment has tremendous value to people, whatever situation they're in, if they're doing well or doing so-so, certainly doing poorly. I don't think the people in Ukraine can really think much about entertainment right now. They're just thinking about getting water and food and, you know, getting shelter from the elements. But there'll come a time where they will be able to appreciate art again. You know, I'm not saying they don't appreciate it now, sure. but they just have other things to focus on. We need to help them in every way that is humanly possible. And there's relief organizations that want to do that. But sadly, right now, as we walk along this river today, the relief organizations are having a lot of trouble getting to where they need to get to just because of infrastructure problems, supply chain problems for, to get enough fuel to get on the bus that's going to get them there to, to give relief, to get a truck loaded up with food or water to get to the people. It's hard to get fuel for that truck even. So we all need to pitch in in every way we can and help those people and help those relief organizations so that can eventually do something to better the lives of the folks in the Ukraine. Well, and it's so important also to acknowledge how um, you know, so many nonprofits have been challenged, certainly during the COVID crisis. And uh, I think there's so many of them that need, need help, certainly, because um, it's just been such a tough couple of years, right? It has. And I love the fact that Kathy Anderson from the Walden Woods Project told me that uh, during COVID, um, that the uh, amount of people walking at uh, Walden Pond uh, increased massively during the uh, last couple of years. Wonderful. Because people are seeking the outdoors. and I didn't know that, Buzz. That's great news. So I think that is really outstanding news. And I have to thank you so much for taking a walk with me. Um, I'm such an admirer of your work, but I'm such an admirer also of what you're so passionate about, your activism, and how you bring it forward to people and with honesty and dignity. And I'm just so grateful that you and I got to take a walk here in Studio City. Me too, Buzz. It's really great to see you again. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 